welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. It's our goal in this series to uh, just encourage you to keep going through the possible various trials in your life. And so this morning, I'm going to pre- continue preaching in that series, and I'm preaching for the, from the title, so, so Great a Salvation. So Great a Salvation. And so with your Bibles in your hand, if you would stand with me, and if you would repeat after me, this is the inspired Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God. And it teaches me all that I need to know about God. And all that God requires of me. It is profitable to teach me, to reprove me, to correct me, to train me in righteousness, and equip me for every good work. And by the grace of God, I will obey it and be transformed by it. Amen. Say amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to read for your hearing as you stand. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I'm reading from the NASB. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them the time, uh-huh, the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, verse 12. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these things into which angels long to look. Father, we thank you once again for an opportunity to come together as the body of Christ and to God break the bread of life. Master, we need you this morning. We need to hear from you. We're all in various stages of trials and suffering and different situations in our lives, God, but we know that in every one of our unique circumstances, you have the answer because you are the answer. And so, God, if you would stand in my body, speak with my mouth, think with my mind. God, let every word that goes forth be from you. And God, let us uh, have hearts, willing hearts to obey all that you say to us in your word. In Jesus' name. And the body say amen. 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 You may take your seats. As I was saying in the prayer, I think every one of us at times experience various trials uh, And I don't know about you, they make us sometimes feel, I know I feel, overwhelmed. And that's because we often tend to elevate our trials to the point that they become larger than anything else in our lives. Or am I the only one? See, it could be a chronic health issue. Or just that you have so much on your plate that there's no time to do anything else, or maybe it's a financial crisis, or a significant relationship is in jeopardy, or maybe it's a family issue, or a marriage crisis, or a rebellious 
child. Whatever your trial, they tend to make us feel powerless. They often blind us to reality, and they make us feel like there's no hope in the future. Well, if you've ever felt this way, then you can relate in some degree to what Peter's readers were feeling. But like any good and caring pastor, Peter wants his readers to feel good. Can I make a confession? I love feel-good movies. This is a confession for me, because my wife is like, no, you don't. Because when my wife asks me usually to watch one of these movies, my initial response is usually negative. I'll say that's not my kind of movie. I love action movies, shoot 'em ups, superheroes. Like Eric, I like The Walking Dead. But I must confess that there's been numerous times when I was watching one of these movies with my wife and I realized I was smiling, literally. I'm like, where did that come from? And more times than I care to admit, I had to go into stealth mode so that I could wipe a tear from my eye without her noticing. I love feel-good movies. I love The Notebook. Pride, that was a man too. Pride and prejudice almost ruined my bad boy personality or persona because my family caught me watching it over and over and over again because it made me feel good. Most of us enjoy feel-good movies because they take us to different places, different times, and they put us, so to speak, in the skins of different kinds of people who are not like us and who don't share our problems. And for a brief moment, even if only in our minds, we get to escape the various trials in our lives. When I read Peter's letter, it's like watching a feel-good movie. But the difference is that with Peter, I don't have to look to the drama in the life of a fictional character because the feel-good life that Peter paints is the one we already have. Somebody can say amen. Peter is writing to believers who reside as aliens in foreign lands, and they were uh, uh, suffering various trials, a whole variety of different kinds of trials as they were trying to live out their faith in Jesus as the Christ. They were suffering various kinds of trials, most certainly persecution, but not exclusively. Various trials could have been trials in their marriages, trials in their families, trials in their health, trials on the job, mental, emotional, spiritual trials. They were suffering with various trials. And Peter encouraged them in chapter 4 to suffer as Christians. Listen, 
What makes our suffering distinctively Christian is when the ultimate goal in suffering, and listen, the manner in which we suffer is done with a view towards the glory of God. It's not just that you keep going, but it's suffering in such a way that others who are watching you can see the beauty of God's grace in your life. These believers lived among different people with cultural beliefs and practices that were radically different and often opposed to their belief and practices as Christians. And so it was mostly because they were living counter to the culture of, their, of the cities in which they lived that, they, that, that it was a, a cause for them to suffer. Culture is defined by its tools and technologies, its symbols and its languages. And the two big ones that define culture are its values and its norms. Values are the society's shared beliefs about what is good or bad, right or wrong, desirable or undesirable. And the norms of a society are the shared rules of conduct that tell people how to act in specific situations. You with me? This has great implication for us today because the values and the norms of the culture in which we live is not only counter to our Christian beliefs and practices, its proponents can often be very unforgiving, unrelenting, and even hostile, even as David was mentioning earlier. And so it's often very easy to do the wrong thing when we are going through a trial. Who's bold enough to say amen? Especially when the culture says that doing the wrong thing is the right thing. It's the right thing, and doing it will alleviate the pain of suffering. Somebody know what I'm talking about. And so, when you are constantly living counter to the values of the culture, and this struggle with the culture is being played out, hear me, in your marriages, with your sexuality, your moral positions, privately, publicly, politically. This kind of nonstop assault over time can result in disappointments, discouragement, and depression. And so with this in mind, Peter writes this feel-good letter to lift the spirits of the saints, and the way he encourages them to keep going is by raising the value of salvation in the hearts and minds of the readers. I love that. So instead of being consumed by their trials, which we all often are, Peter wants them to consider the greatness of their salvation. This is what he wants them to know. That even though now for a little while, if necessary, they have been distressed by various trials, they currently have a salvation, they currently have in salvation the grace that the prophets studied. They have the glory that the prophets sought. And they have the good news for which the prophets served. 
I know that many of us today, if not all of us, in some ways, we're going through a trial. And if so, if you're here this morning, and if your trials have you feeling weak or weary or ready, I mean ready to give up, I want to encourage you to keep going. Peter writes to raise the value of salvation so high that when they understand the value that they have in salvation, they will be lifted to a height where no trial will be too difficult for them to overcome. Don't you want to be there? So like Peter, I want to help us to raise our various, uh, uh, raise above our, uh, rise above our various trials by presenting for your, your consideration three extremely valuable qualities of salvation. I first want you to know the value of grace in salvation. Secondly, I want you to see the value of glory in salvation. And finally, I want you to hear the good news in salvation. Here's the first point, the value of grace in salvation. Look at your Bibles. It says, as to this salvation. Peter doesn't deny or minimize their suffering. Instead, what he does is he elevates what they have in salvation to a height that's far higher than the lowest depths of their pain. So listen to what he says. As to this salvation, what salvation is he speaking of? The one that he said has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What salvation? The one that granted or guaranteed our adoption as sons and daughters and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Don't that make you feel good? As, as to this salvation that, that promises us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and one that will not fade away. What is this inheritance? It is the salvation that is reserved uh, uh, or, or the salvation that reserves your place in heaven before the presence of almighty God for all eternity. How do you not start swinging from chandeliers with that true Peter? is trying to raise the value of salvation. He wants us to appreciate what we already have. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Listen, the people highly revered and respected the prophets as God's divine messengers. And what Peter is saying is that God gave them a word that was so outrageous, so wonderful, so spectacular that they diligently and carefully studied and, and poured over the words of their own prophecy trying to gain a greater understanding of the grace that they were prophesying about. They were given these prophecies 
of grace. And they knew it was something so amazing, so valuable, and yet they were not given the full revelation of what it meant because it was not for them. They wanted to understand it so badly that they conducted investigations of their own times. But Ephesians 3, 5 says it was not made known to them. Peter is saying to his readers that these great men who you look up to, who were used greatly by God, who delivered great prophecies about grace. Listen, he's saying that on their best day, they didn't have what you have. Hello, lights. On their best day, they didn't have what you have today. Peter just elevated salvation by grace to a level of power that should help his readers to keep going through their various trials. We often feel powerless in the face of various trials, but grace is the power to keep on going. But what is most unfortunate for some believers today, no one in here, is that we've assigned too low a value to the grace in our salvation. We're not content with Jesus alone. So we need something more valuable. We need more than just God. For some, his grace isn't sufficient enough. And so we suffer various trials trying to hold on to the very things that God wants us to let go. But God will bring a trial in your life for the sole purpose of helping you to know the value of depending on him and his grace alone. Because there's tremendous power in the life of a believer who understands the true value of grace. Now, grace is a very interesting word. We often define grace as being God's unlimited or unearned uh, 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 favor, amen, or unmerited favor. Let me suggest that there's no word in the New Testament that has any greater importance to us than grace. The word grace was used in the Greek pagan world long before the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit used it to, to describe God's favor towards men. The Greeks were lovers of beauty. They loved beauty in nature. They, they, they loved beauty in their architecture. They, they loved beauty in their sanctuaries. They, they loved beauty in their poetry. They loved beauty in their plays and in their dramas. Anything that caused the heart to experience a sense of awe and wonder, anything that caused the heart to feel ad, uh, admiration and pleasure and joy, uh, 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 this word grace was used. The Greeks referred to grace as a favor done freely with no expectation of return. 
Its only motive was in the generosity of the free will of the giver. You with me? This favor was always done exclusively to a friend and never to an enemy. But this definition of grace does nothing for us. If grace was simply unmerited favor towards a friend, it would have never had the power to save us because we were enemies of God. So we needed a more powerful grace. Are you with me? So the meaning of this Greek pagan word grace had to undergo a transformation in order for it to be beneficial to the Christian writers. The transformation of grace began when Christ left heaven and came to earth in the form of a man. When Jesus was agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, the power of grace was being perfected. When he stood before Caiaphas, the Jewish council, Pilate and Herod, an innocent man wrongly accused, the power of grace was being perfected. As he was enduring humiliation of being spat upon and slapped in the face and beaten with fists and beaten with rods, the power of grace was being perfected. Are you with me? When they took the cat of nine tails and tore open his back and his legs, the power of grace was being perfected. When they shoved the crown of thorns on his brow and mocked him, the power of grace was being perfected. When they crucified him, when they nailed him to the cross, when they pierced him in the side, all the while the power of grace was being perfected. And then on the third day, when he rose up and got out and walked out of the tomb, the power of grace had reached its ultimate perfection. I'm going to help you on that one. Through the suffering of Christ, the value of grace was transformed. Grace was now something that could be used for our benefit. For the Lord Jesus died, not for friends, but for enemies, a thing that was unheard of in the human race at that time. Romans 5, 8, and 10 says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, did you hear that? If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Grace is no longer just a favor. It's not simply God reaching into his bag of goodies and giving us something we don't deserve. No, grace is much, much more. Grace is God giving us the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. 
Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. If you want to experience the power to overcome various trials in your life, you must first receive the grace of God. Now we can better understand what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, when he said, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power, listen to this, power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties for, the, for, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grace is the power we need to overcome all of the various trials and live out this Christian life victoriously. Here's the second point. The value of glory in salvation. Look at verse 11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I don't know how Eric is so cool and he don't sweat like me. Because <laughs> that man know how to preach too, whether you know it or not. Peter is placing before his readers the value of glory in salvation. And he's doing this by sharing the example of the, suffer, of, of the sufferings of, of Jesus and his subsequent glorification or the glories, the, the new the NASB says, or the glories to follow. What he wants us to know is that our various trials will not last forever. There's a limit to suffering. It's necessary, but only for a little while. Your suffering has an expiration date, and the end result is glory. <laughs> Get this, long before Peter's readers were born, long before any of us were born, in fact, before the foundation of the world, God had already pre-planned our rescue from every one of our trials. That is good news. Seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Scripture reveals that God is a God of order. He sticks to his own M.O. He has a prescribed way of working in our lives. And since the fall of man, suffering has always preceded glory. I know you don't like to hear that. Peter is setting before his readers the suffering of the prophets and of the Christ as examples to let us know that our trials, no matter how bad they may be or how long they may last, they will not destroy the glory reserved for us in heaven. The prophets suffered greatly 
for this glory. And as they sought to know the, who the Messiah would be and, and when the Messiah would come, listen to what da, uh, uh, the prophet Daniel says. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And then he says later on, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was no one to explain it. The prophet Ezekiel, listen, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, behold, I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mournings for the dead. Bind your turban and, and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening, my wife died. And in the morning, I did what I was commanded. And we know the grief of the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. Even the prophet Isaiah said, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Peter is presenting the prophet's as examples of those who suffered greatly but kept on going in their service to God. And listen to what James said about these prophets. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, who count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. They patiently suffered and kept going in their service to the Lord. Peter is saying, look at what kind of trials the prophet endured, and yet they didn't have what you have. They didn't know what you now know. All they could do was to, to, to seek to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. God took these faithful prophets, so to speak, to a high place where the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 predicted the, the, uh, by the Spirit of Christ within him the suffering of Christ on Mount Calvary. And looking from peak to peak, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14 predicted by the Spirit of Christ within him the glories to follow as he saw the resurrected Christ on the Mount of Olives. But gazing from peak to peak from their high place, they could not see the valley that extended between the two mountains. The valley is the age of the church. And Peter is saying to the readers of his letters and to us that this is where we are now. We live in the valley that the prophets could not see. 
And it is in this valley, in this time, that we can greatly rejoice because the mystery that had been hidden from them in the past has now been manifested to his saints. <laughs> this is so incredibly encouraging to, to suffering saints because it communicates that the prophet's suffering was temporary and that it had an end goal of glory and it was governed by the providence of God. And this should cause a greater appreciation for our salvation. It should, it should, it should cause us to, to more readily cling to and, and, and put our trust in God. And God uses trials to help us to keep going as sojourners so, that, so as not to become too comfortable here when we, and, and, and that we won't make this place our home. So listen, when God, is perfect, uh, when, when God in his perfect timing brings you out of your trial, and the genuineness of your faith having been tested and proven, listen, your experience in suffering will intensify the joy of living faithfully under the sovereign control and care and providence of a loving God. Oh, that's true. To know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Take note again of the order. The sufferings of Christ precedes the glory to follow. Suffering precedes glory. There's no greater example of the glory that follows suffering than that in the life of Christ. Amen? Jesus, the man, our substitute and example, first suffered before he was glorified. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. The guarantee, the down payment, the pledge that you will come out of suffering into glory is the service of the prophets and the suffering of Christ and his subsequent glory. Man, that's good news. Peter is redirecting our attention away from our suffering to the reality of glory that follows the suffering and this glory of Christ is also ours. Romans 8 says this, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer, we, uh, we suffer, I'm sorry, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that feel good? So herein is the value of glory in salvation. It is the promise that if we keep going, church, if we willingly with grace as his children suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him, with a glory that is far more valuable than the suffering of this present time. For I consider 
that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For those who are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, our trials are always temporal. And the discomfort of suffering is always mitigated by the eternal value of being glorified together with Jesus. Oh, that's good news. Last point, and I'm going to take my seat. The value of the gospel in salvation. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been uh, announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit since, uh, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Oh, man, there is so much in this one verse. Uh, Y'all know I can preach hours in any verse, though. But I only have time to cover a few of the diamonds here. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Peter's point is that even though we must suffer, we live in a time far more advantageous than the prophets who help prepare us to receive the grace, the glory, and the gospel that we now enjoy. Isn't that good? Why would this matter to Peter's listeners or to us today? Because for God to communicate his sovereignty and his providential plans for us way back through the Old Testament prophets, this communicates that God is always in control. He's always aware of where we are and what we're feeling. I don't know about you, but that is so good to me that I, I, when I'm going through, I need to stay here because I'll take forever if I walk away and just start talking. <laughs> but when I'm going through to know that God is in control and I know the character of God, his justice, I know how much he loves me. Oh, man, I can go through anything when I choose to focus on that truth. I lost my place. I'm trying to preach it. <laughs> We're always on his heart and mind. And he's so concerned for us that he has already made plans to bring us through our trials. This should, should produce great encouragement to know that since he did all of this way back then, then guess what? There's no doubt that he will take care of us today. And what makes all of this so much more valuable is that those who preach to you are empowered by the same spirit who revealed to the prophets of old that they were serving you. <laughs> You'll get it. You got to read it again. Go home and read it again. I'm going to hear you scream. If I hear somebody screaming, I'm going to know you read the text and I'm going to know you got it. The stock of salvation has just gone through the roof. Peter has once again raised the value of the good news in salvation. It is Good news to know that, that back in chapter 3 of Genesis, God had already planned for our salvation. It is good news to know that he used the prophets to prepare the way for a Savior. 
It is good news to know that Jesus fulfilled every Old Testament prophet, uh, prophecy concerning the Messiah so that our faith in him is secure. It is good news to know that now there is nothing that will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life. We are eternally secure in Christ, and that's good news. Ah. And it's precisely this good news that the angels are peering over the banister of heaven, trying to look at, trying to look into. That's what that word means, that they were bent over, looking into the lives of the church, things into which angels long to look. The fact that angels long to look into our lives is evidence that we live in a privileged time, church. Have you ever had that feeling that someone's watching you? I know. I, when I was planning this, I, that just came to my mind, you know. Some of the old folks don't know it, I know. Or some of the young folks might not know it, huh? <laughs> there are someone watching you. Or there is. There are angels watching you. The question is, what do they see? They long to see the church. They long to see the kingdom of God. They long to see the ultimate defeat of the enemy. They long to see the good news of the gospel. What is it that the angels are longing to look into? Peter tells us it is what the Spirit of Christ was predicting through the prophets concerning the suffering and the glories of Christ. It is the good news that the Holy Spirit has revealed and is now being preached to you. It's the gospel. Angels long to look into God taking on human flesh and be born again as an infant. This is much, a much, uh, 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 must see TV for angels. <laughs> angels long to look into God, allowing himself to be rejected and beaten and nailed to a cross by his creation. This is unthinkable to the angels who fly around the throne day and night saying, holy, holy, holy. Angels long to look at the death of the creator because there's no way in heaven this could ever happen. Angels long to look at how this holy and righteous triune God would take up residence inside rebellious humans and live through them something that he would never do and they would never get to experience. Angels. Long to see their Lord advancing heaven on earth, advancing his kingdom rule in the hearts of men as his church fulfills the great commission. They long to see the church, the bride of Christ, adorned in all of her beauty. Church, we are being watched by angels. They watch with great expectation. Why? Because they know the God who lives in us 
They're watching, expecting to see God do great things in and through his church. They're watching, ready to give praise and glory and, and honor to God as they see him in us and us in him. If this isn't enough to keep you going, I don't know what will. So here's the point. We have a salvation that is infinitely valuable. It's infinitely valuable because when we strip away from salvation all of its wonderful blessings, we're left with just one thing, God. This is the good news of salvation. That what was prophesied long ago and fulfilled by Christ is that God gave himself to us. And he is always with us. So in your various trials, know this. God is there. Marital discord, God is there. In loneliness, God is there. In sickness, God is there. In lack, in need, God is there. When you know the high value of grace and salvation, you can keep going. When you see the high value of glory in salvation, you can keep going. When you hear the high value of the good news in salvation, you can keep going. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, you called us to yourself, and by your precious blood, you cleansed us, forgave us, adopted us, made us children. For that God, we are eternally grateful. Forgive us for taking our salvation so great a salvation for granted. Forgive us for not assigning the value that it is worth. And then God, help us to know the value of what the prophets studied for, desired to see, sought after, and yet belongs to us. As we prepare to take and eat together from your table. Refresh our love, our joy, our commitment. Refresh, oh God, nurture us, nourish us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegracemenifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.